This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 13 The Unity of the Divine Essence in Three Persons Taught in Scripture from the Foundation of the World Sections 6. After the definition of the term follows a definition and explanation of the thing meant by it, the distinction of the persons. 7. Proofs of the eternal deity of the Son, the Son, the Logos, of the eternal Father, and therefore the Son, eternal God. Objection? Reply. 8. Objection. That the Logos began to be when the creating God spoke. Answer confirmed by Scripture and argument. 9. The Son called God and Jehovah. Other names of the Eternal Father applied to Him in the Old Testament. He is, therefore, the Eternal God. Another objection refuted. Case of the Jews explained. 10. The angel who appeared to the fathers under the law asserts that he is Jehovah. That angel was the Logos of the Eternal Father. The Son being that Logos is Eternal God. Impiety of Servetus refuted. Why the Son appeared in the form of an angel. Section 6 But to say nothing more of words, let us now attend to the thing signified. By person, then, I mean a subsistence in the divine essence. A subsistence which, while related to the other two, is distinguished from them by incommunicable properties. By subsistence we wish something else to be understood than essence. For if the word were God simply, and had not some property peculiar to himself, John could not have said correctly that he had always been with God. When he adds immediately after that the word was God, he calls us back to the one essence. But because he could not be with God without dwelling in the Father, hence arises that subsistence which, though connected with the essence by an indissoluble tie, being incapable of separation, yet has a special mark by which it is distinguished from it. Now I say that each of the three subsistences, while related to the others, is distinguished by its own properties. Here relation is distinctly expressed, because when God is mentioned simply and indefinitely, The name belongs not less to the Son and Spirit than to the Father. But whenever the Father is compared with the Son, the peculiar property of each distinguishes the one from the other. Again, whatever is proper to each I affirm to be incommunicable, because nothing can apply or be transferred to the Son which is attributed to the Father as a mark of distinction. I have no objections to adopt the definition of Tertullian, provided it is properly understood. Quote, that there is in God a certain arrangement or economy which makes no change on the unity of essence. End quote. Section 7. Before proceeding farther, it will be necessary to prove the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thereafter we shall see how they differ from each other. When the word of God is set before us in the Scriptures, it were certainly most absurd to imagine that it is only a fleeting and evanescent voice which is set out into the air and comes forth beyond God himself, as was the case with the communications made to the patriarchs 
and all the prophecies. The reference is rather to the wisdom ever dwelling with God, and by which all oracles and prophecies were inspired. For as Peter testifies in 1 Peter 1.11, the ancient prophets spake by the Spirit of Christ, just as did the apostles, and all who after them were ministers of the heavenly doctrine. But as Christ was not yet manifested, we necessarily understand that the Word was begotten of the Father before all ages. But if that Spirit, whose organs the prophets were, belonged to the Word, the inference is irresistible that the Word was truly God. And this is clearly enough shown by Moses in his account of the creation, where he places the Word as intermediate. For why does he distinctly narrate that God, in creating each of his works, said, Let there be this, let there be that, unless that the unsearchable glory of God might shine forth in his image? I know prattlers would easily evade this by saying that word is used for order or command. But the apostles are better expositors when they tell us that the worlds were created by the Son and that he sustains all things by his mighty word, Hebrews 1.2. For we here see that word is used for the nod or command of the Son, who is himself the eternal and essential word of the Father. And no man of sane mind can have any doubt as to Solomon's meaning when he introduces wisdom as begotten by God, and presiding at the creation of the world and all other divine operations. Proverbs 8.22 For it were trifling and foolish to imagine any temporary command at a time when God was pleased to execute his fixed and eternal counsel, and something more still mysterious. To this our Savior's words refer My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. John 5.17 In thus affirming that from the foundation of the world he constantly worked with the Father, he gives a clearer explanation of what Moses simply touched. The meaning, therefore, is that God spoke in such a manner as left the Word his peculiar part in the work, and thus made the operation common to both. But the clearest explanation is given by John when he states that the Word, which was from the beginning, God and with God, was together with God the Father, the Maker of all things. For he both attributes a substantial and permanent essence to the Word, assigning to it a certain peculiarity, and distinctly showing how God spoke the world into being. Therefore, as all revelations from heaven are duly designated by the title of the Word of God, so the highest place must be assigned to that substantial Word, the source of all inspiration, which as being liable to no variation, remains forever one and the same with God and is God. Section 8 Here an outcry is made by certain men, who, while they dare not openly deny his divinity, secretly rob him of his eternity. For they contend that the word only began to be when God opened his sacred mouth in the creation of the world. Thus, with excessive temerity, they imagine some change in the essence of God. For as the names of God, which have respect to external work, began to be ascribed to him from the existence of the work, as when he is called the creator of heaven and earth, so piety does not recognize or admit any name which might indicate that a change had taken place in God himself. For if anything adventitious took place, the saying of James would cease to be true, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17
Nothing, therefore, is more intolerable than to fancy a beginning to that word which was always God, and afterwards was the creator of the world. But they think they argue acutely in maintaining that Moses, when he says that God then spoke for the first time, must be held to intimate that till then no word existed in him. This is the merest trifling. It does not surely follow that because a thing begins to be manifested at a certain time, it never existed previously. I draw a very different conclusion, since at the very moment when God said, Let there be light, the energy of the word was immediately exerted. It must have existed long before. If any inquire how long, he will find it was without beginning. No certain period of time is defined when he himself says, Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 17.5 Nor is this omitted by John, for before he descends to the creation of the world, he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We therefore again conclude that the Word was eternally begotten by God, and dwelt with him from everlasting. In this way his true essence... His eternity and divinity are established. Section 9 But though I am not now treating of the office of the mediator, having deferred it till the subject of redemption is considered, yet because it ought to be clear and incontrovertible to all that Christ is that word become incarnate, this seems the most appropriate place to introduce those passages which assert the divinity of Christ. When it is said in the 45th Psalm, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, the Jews quibble that the name Elohim is applied to angels and sovereign powers. But no passage is to be found in Scripture where an eternal throne is set up for a creature. For he is not called God simply, but also the eternal ruler. Besides, the title is not conferred on any man without some addition as when it is said that Moses would be a god to Pharaoh, Exodus 7.1. Some read as if it were in the genitive case, but this is too insipid. I admit that anything possessed of singular excellence is often called divine, but it is clear from the context that this meaning here were harsh and forced, and totally inapplicable. But if their perverseness still refuses to yield, surely there is no obscurity in Isaiah, where Christ is introduced both us God and as possessed of supreme powers, one of the peculiar attributes of God. His name shall be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. Here, too, the Jews object and invert the passage thus. This is the name by which the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, will call him, so that all which they leave to the Son is Prince of Peace. But why should so many epithets be here accumulated on God the Father, seeing the prophet's design is to present the Messiah with certain distinguished properties which may induce us to put our faith in him? There can be no doubt, therefore, that he who a little before was called Emmanuel is here called the Mighty God. Moreover, there can be nothing clearer than the words of Jeremiah. This is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. Jeremiah 23.6 for as the Jews themselves teach that the other names of God are mere epithets, whereas this, which they call the ineffable name, is substantive and expresses his essence, we infer that the only begotten Son is the eternal God, 
who elsewhere declares, My glory will I not give to another. Isaiah 42.8 An attempt is made to evade this from the fact that this name is given by Moses to the altar which he built, and by Ezekiel to the new Jerusalem. But who sees not that the altar was erected as a memorial to show that God was the exalter of Moses, and that the name of God was applied to Jerusalem merely to testify the divine presence? For thus the prophet speaks, The name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. Ezekiel 48.35 In the same way, Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah my exaltation. But it would seem the point is still more keenly disputed as to another passage in Jeremiah, where the same title is applied to Jerusalem in these words, In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. But so far as this passage from being adverse to the truth which we defend, that it rather supports it. The prophet, having formally declared that Christ is the true Jehovah from whom righteousness flows, now declares that the church would be made so sensible of this as to be able to glory in assuming his very name. In the former passage, therefore, the fountain and cause of righteousness is set down in the latter. The effect is described. Section 10. But if this does not satisfy the Jews, I know not what cavils will enable them to evade the numerous passages in which Jehovah is said to have appeared in the form of an angel. Judges 6 7, 13, 16 through 23, etc. This angel claims for himself the name of the eternal God. Should it be alleged that this is done in respect of the office which he bears, the difficulty is by no means solved. No servant would rob God of his honor by allowing sacrifice to be offered to himself. But the angel, by refusing to eat bread, orders the sacrifice due to Jehovah to be offered to him. Thus the fact itself proves that he was truly Jehovah. Accordingly, Manoah and his wife infer from the sign that they had seen not only an angel, but God. Hence Manoah's exclamation, We shall die, for we have seen the Lord. When the woman replies, If Jehovah had wished to slay us, he would not have received the sacrifice at our hand. She acknowledges that he who was previously called an angel was certainly God. We may add that the angel's own reply removes all doubt. Why do ye ask my name, which is wonderful? Hence the impiety of Servetus was the more detestable when he maintained that God was never manifested to Abraham and the patriarchs but that an angel was worshipped in his stead. The orthodox doctors of the church have correctly and wisely expounded that the word of God was the supreme angel, who then began, as it were by anticipation, to perform the office of mediator. For though he were not clothed with flesh, yet he descended as in an intermediate form, that he might have more familiar access to the faithful. This closer intercourse procured for him the name of the angel, Still, however, he retained the character which justly belonged to him, that of the God of ineffable glory. The same thing is intimated by Hosea, who, after mentioning the wrestling of Jacob with the angel, says, Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Hosea 12.5 Servetus again insinuates that God personated an angel, as if the prophet did not confirm what had been said by Moses. 
Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? Genesis 32.29 and 30. And the confession of the holy patriarch sufficiently declares that he was not a created angel, but one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt, when he says, I have seen God face to face. Hence also Paul's statement that Christ led the people in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Also the time of humiliation had not yet arrived. The eternal word exhibited a type of the office which he was to fulfill. Again, if the first chapter of Zechariah, verse 9, etc., and the second, verse 3, etc., be candidly considered, it will be seen that the angel who sends the other angel is immediately after declared to be the Lord of hosts, and that supreme power is ascribed to him. I omit numberless passages in which our faith rests secure, though they may not have much weight with the Jews. For when it is said in Isaiah, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 25.9 Even the blind may see that the God referred to is he who again rises up for the deliverance of his people. And the emphatic description, twice repeated, precludes the idea that reference is made to any other than to Christ. Still clearer and stronger is the passage of Malachi, in which a promise is made that the messenger who was then expected would come to his own temple, Malachi 3.1. The temple certainly was dedicated to Almighty God only, and yet the prophet claims it for Christ. Hence it follows that he is the God who was always worshipped by the Jews. (laughs) 